Welcome to the You Lead Podcast, brought to you by the Council for School Leadership of the Alberta Teachers Association. Hello and welcome to episode three of the You Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. In this episode, we feature a session about learning space design with Rebecca Hare. After a decade in Italy as a design consultant and creative director, Rebecca became fascinated with education. The young designers she hired, she found, struggled with problem-solving and critical thinking. She returned to the U.S. to study education and Bill Tonner BFA in industrial design. Her master's thesis focused on design thinking and evaluating and enhancing creativity through the study of design and art. Now, Rebecca is an art and design teacher with Clayton Public Schools in St. Louis. She's also a learning space designer and co-author of the book, The Space, A Guide for Educators. She has worked with a number of schools to collaboratively design learning spaces and experiences that enhance student learning, agency, and making thinking visible. If you like this session, it's one of the many that we offer every year at our ULEAD conference. Please join us this coming year in Banff. You can get more information and register at ulead.ca. Now here is Rebecca Hare. So this is a little bit different. We're really going to kind of dig into learning spaces and focusing on classrooms. The work of this morning is, for me, was really just what I've seen by working with leaders. I've gone into so many different schools and there's there's so much potential for culture to really come alive. That was the work, but it started off with this work inside of classrooms. So I'm excited to share this with you and some, some new resources that I'm developing um, to get schools to feel really comfortable to do this kind of design work on their own. So let's get started. And is this working as a remote still? No, we'll use these. That will work, okay. So I'm having all sorts of technical difficulty today. I've been told that I'm cursed. So there are a bunch of cables on the floor and the first person to snap a picture of me falling over the cables wins. Um, that's my goal. So um, we already heard about me. That's enough. I, um, I get to work all over. I will tell you a little bit that I've done, um, I'm working with San Francisco Unified School District right now and we're doing about 50 different spaces across 18 different buildings um, across the school district. And what I've been developing with this is really an understanding of how to make teachers and leaders feel more empowered in this work, that when I'm not there, they feel comfortable to do this work on their own. Um, the training, kind of train the trainer um, work is what I'm really trying to do, and I'm finding that there are a lot of roadblocks in it. So we'll talk about that today as well. 17,290, I believe this is the right um, number for Canada and not the United States. Um, what do you think this means? Somebody guess. If you guess right, I'll give you a book. How many schools there are? Close. Okay, what else? Classrooms, that's another idea. All right, no one's going to get it. It's different. I mean, it might be that many classrooms. That's not what the number says to mean. So it's actually, is there how many hours kids are in school until they graduate? Yeah, it's staggering, right? I know. It's kind of, it's sort of disappointing. It's a lot of time in school. So really our challenge is like, how can we make this the best 17,290 hours of their lives? Um, it's not a negative number, but it is kind of daunting because that space that's happening in a space, you can't separate learning and the experience of the space in which the learning takes place. Those two things are really um, intertwined. And so how can we look at those spaces with fresh new eyes and really feel empowered with them? Um, there are some challenging aspects of space, and so I don't want to glean over this and pretend like it's not there, but they are not the things we're going to really discuss today because some of these things take architects and budgets that we have that we, or that we don't have and control that we can actually take. So we're really thinking about teaching and learning today and less about all the architectural environment issues. But these do affect kids. So sound, research tells us that high levels of noise affects cognitive function and impact on performance tasks. Um, we have a lot of schools right now that I'm working with that are trying to create, um, trying to really start to learn to control the sound and the environments because so many kids, there's way too much auditory stimulation and way too much visual stimulation and they, and they can't, it's causing cognitive overload and they're really struggling in school for this and we think that it's behavior but it's really, it's sound and visual. Um, our light, 
Students in classrooms with good natural daylight in the U.S. progressed to between 15 to 26 percent faster over a year than their peers in classrooms with no daylight. Um, something else we don't have control over. We can't knock down walls and put light in. Um, but you can put um, LED lighting that is full spectrum that does seem to have some effects that can be very costly. Um, taking kids outside more to play is another thing we can do. But lighting is something else we can't really talk about because um, we don't have control over it in air. Um, right now, I'm the coldest. I'm in the basement of my school. So our air quality is not that great. I try to open up windows that open up this much. So all things I can't control, but research shows us that a space with high levels of CO2, which translates as a stuffy feeling, is detrimental to students' attainment and increases the number of six days teachers take. So all good stuff, all bad stuff, but all real stuff. So moving forward. So usually what happens when I work with schools is the people who get to make the decisions are these guys behind me. It's the um, facilities directors. It's the um, somebody on this, and like the superintendent's board. And these are the people who affect what goes into a classroom, if there's new furniture, and what happens in them. It's very rarely the teachers. And when I work with schools, the first thing I say is the people that are closest to the learning are the ones who should be making decisions about furniture, about technology, about curriculum, about pedagogy. We can't keep distancing um, these decisions by people who have not been in a classroom in 10 years or maybe never. And no offense to facilities directors out there, please, I like you too, but it's an important thing to keep in mind. And teachers, instead, we get to have this. That's, that's, I can't tell you the classrooms I've been in where I'm like, oh, so what function does this piece of furniture have? And they're like, I found it in the hallway. Like, I knocked down Debbie to get to it. And I dragged it in my room because, you know, we got the email that free table in hallway and then like all of the exits of the teachers running to grab it slow motion. I got it first. I'm like, oh, well, congratulations. What are you going to do with it? I don't know. I've had it for four years and I don't know what I'm doing with it, but I'm holding on to it because I won. Um, the free stuff thing is, it's, it's, it's so funny and it's also so tragic because our teachers deserve a lot more than that. Not to spend their weekends going to garage sales and trying to get something nice for their classrooms or spending their own um, budgets on pillows and cushions. Um, these things really matter. But, you know, whenever I ask teacher uh, leaders what they say, like, what would your teachers do? They'd all do that. And if you're, how many of you would be the first person out in the hallway to go and grab the table? I would be too. I've done that. But what happens is we end up bringing all these things into our space and it's not done with purpose. It's done because we have a sense of, of lack in our, um, and lack of resources. And so instead, things should really come in because it's exactly what we need. You would never go and go to a garage sale and get the curriculum materials from 1990 and think that was a really great deal because you got a good deal on it. You'd be like, no, my kids deserve better. And our kids deserve better with what happens in their classrooms too. So um, Scott Durley and Scott Withoft wrote a book called Make Space, which is one of my favorite books ever. Um, we actually wrote our book because I kept telling people to buy this book, but teachers didn't quite get it. It felt a little bit too far away from, from, from classrooms. They say we read our physical environment like we read a human face. So let's read some environments together and shout out what you're thinking, what happens in these spaces. So what happens here? Shout it out. Creativity, collaboration, awesome. What else? <laughs> yeah, right? I know, it's, it actually does. What else happens here? <laughs> There's choice, right? There's some choices. It feels like also kind of inspirational. So we know what's going to happen. We know this is like maybe an elementary building. We see that there's some choices of where to sit and how to work. We see like a little direct instruction happening in the back of the class. Um, so, yes, yeah, spontaneous movement. What about this one? What happens here? What is your... Creating. Making, yes. So this is where you're going to pick up a tool and do something. This is not where you're going to like, I'm going to re retire and read my novel. That's not what the space invites you to do. Every space invites you to do something. You walk in here and you sit down and you face forward. This tells you the orientation. You walk into um, the Fairmont and I stand a little taller and I, and I act like I'm somebody who belongs in such a fancy space. <laughs> <laughs> you did it too. People who laugh last, they know what I'm talking about. You're like, I, I've always frequented these delightful places. 
You know, that's that you, it changes how we interact with our environments. Um, what about this space? What does this tell us what we do? I know. Sleep. Sometimes, yeah, that sounds like, sounds like some of my college experience. It's a learning factory. I feel so bad because there's, there, I don't love these spaces because they are more teacher centered, but there are definitely times in which that's appropriate. We don't want to go to a movie and have flexible furniture. You know, you don't want to be trying to look over somebody. It makes sense in this case. So if you're going to just deliver information, good job. That's what you need. The problem is if you're just going to deliver information, right? So it's that practice that we want to change if we don't like it. But if that's all you're doing, this space is well designed for you, right? A little bit of both. This is a school. This is in California. Um, what's your class sizes here for high school? What's your cap? <laughs> There's no cap? You can have like 100 kids in one class? No way, really? With 30? Like, really? 45? Oh, that's a lot of kids in a class. That's what it's like in California. I was hoping you guys would be like, oh, poor California. Instead, you're like, oh, yeah, us too. So this is a really overcrowded classroom. And again, everyone's in rows. They all face the same way. And this was last year. We'll show you what this face looks like later. But it's the same kind of thing. We're going to set, we're going to get information from our teacher. We're going to be asked to do tasks. And we're going to leave and go into our next learning experience. So David Kelly says, and he's from the D School and IDEO and one of my heroes, um, space has an impact on behavior. And right now, space is impacting your behavior. It's impacting mine, having to stand here and um, be vulnerable and a little bit embarrassed. And where you are in the space changes things, but also just the environment itself. So teachers started off asking me to come in because like, oh, now you have an education degree. You're a teacher. You were a designer. You designed spaces for 10 years. Let's mix the two things together. That's how I got here which I know doesn't sound very purposeful, but it has been five years of a lot of purpose. And then we'd start off with this blank space, and they would say, what do I need to get in here? What table should I get? What is the right chair? What's the best thing to get? And I would always say, what are you going to do? What's going to happen? What's the incredible learning that's going to happen in here? And they always wanted to focus on the stuff. And the thing is that you're the designer of your learning space. If you work in a space, if you work at a whole school, you're the head designer. We talk about lead learner, you're the lead designer. You're doing the same thing with your spaces. And if you do it with intention, it affects kids. And if you do it haphazardly, it affects kids as well. So really taking that role on and owning it, I think is a first step to understand that I am the designer of this space. The choices I make really matter. So, my favorite Henry Ford quote, if I had asked people what they had wanted, they would have said faster horses, right? Here's your school's faster horse. You guys remember these? They were really popular like five years ago. No? Anybody, anybody teach with these? Yeah? got them. So, so tell, correct me if I'm wrong. Do you love them? You love them? I don't love them. I taught design with these. They're a desk on wheels. And there are certain learning experiences, if you really go by the models of instruction, that can be really great with these kinds of chairs. Would you put them in a design studio and have kids building and making and creating with them? Neither would I. But my, my, my principal decided to buy them all for all the classrooms and said, you're welcome. We had great tables to work on. And we ended up with these. My students couldn't build anything. So we ended up shoving them in the corner and working off of the floor and then begging for our tables back again. There is no silver bullet. There's no one right table. This is still a desk. It's still constructing the kids to sit. And if that's all, that's the only posture they get to have for 47 minutes, that's very constructive. We need to keep moving. Every movement we make is important for our vestibular system, for our development, for our spine, for our musculoskeletal systems. So I don't like anything that says, this is your one choice. And then with this one, it was funny because I taught middle school with this. Right? what grade did you teach? High school. Okay, so middle school students instead, in our design studio, the first two weeks of class, they would, might be collaborating, might be working, and then I would work to go to another group and you'd have like this group of students just like scooting over next to you. So like they would just follow me across the room and then have to like kind of kick away. And at the end of class, they'd all be like, the, the, the chairs would be everywhere. It was kind of chaos because our projects were everywhere. 
it's like I said, it's great for certain things. It's not the best thing. So if you get to make these kinds of choices, make sure whatever you're getting is right for the exact kind of learning that happens in that space. Brad, what kind of learning happened in your space? Yeah, because you wouldn't buy this for like a, a maker space. No. All right. One of my favorite things to do when we're thinking about adding things into kids' classes is the rug. This was a rug I got from Ikea, my very first classroom. Uh, it cost me about $25. And, and when, as soon as I opened it up to my students, because we had chairs and we had this rug, as soon as I opened it up to my students as a place to learn, they all went and worked on the rug for about two weeks. This is pre-K through two. And then about two weeks, the end of that time, I had about two kids, two or three kids left in each class who stayed on their floor. What happened is they all realized, I don't write well there. I don't draw well there. But they got to choose that themselves. By giving them some sort of a choice, they had an opportunity to make, make that choice and learn from it and get better. And so the rug is a simple, easy, cheap fix. Some places on the floor. We've got a chair now, and we've got a rug. But stuff is important because it does help determine how the space actually works. So when we're learning space designers, we have to think in these terms, or at least I want to think in these terms, because I visited more schools in Canada and America where they're like, we made this high-level decision. We bought all this stuff. Can you help us fix it? And then they realized through the course of the day, we bought the wrong stuff because we started off there. We started off with the furniture company going to us and going, these are the most amazing tables on the market. And then everyone's like, we want the most amazing tables in the market. They didn't bring them in, they didn't test them out, they just got them. And then they're stuck with them for 30 years. So we start off with why. Why do you care about this? What do you want to have happen in your classroom? And then once you understand your why, your deeper purpose, you're going to move on to the how, how the classroom is actually going to work, how the learning space is going to function, all the things that we need to do to make it work. And then finally, at the end, because you've made all these big high-level decisions, the what, this furniture really chooses itself. It becomes just a few different things you're actually going to choose. We're going to watch this because I've talked enough. Um, a couple minutes of this and about our whys, and then we'll, we're going to dig back in. This should, this should hopefully work. How do I know? A lot of people, when they think of the phrase, how do I know, they always want to put the what behind it. How do I know what I'm supposed to do? The, the question that you really should ask is, how do I know why I'm here? Because when you know your why, your what becomes more clear and more impactful. If you know, like for instance, um, people know that I do comedy, but that's what I do. My why is to inspire people to walk in purpose. So I can do comedy, I can write books, I can be in a movie because all of it is motivated by my why. In fact, I have a new, uh, a new web series out called Michael Jr. Break Time. Uh, we probably just did the sixth episode. It's on YouTube. So every single Wednesday at 3 o'clock, we drop a new episode on YouTube of Michael Jr. Break Time. What it is is it's me. I travel around the country and I do stand-up comedy in case you didn't know. And in the middle of my comedy set sometime, I'll stop and just talk to my audience. And we've been filming this, and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. So we're in Winston-Salem. I'm going to show you a clip from Winston-Salem. And I'm just talking to this guy in the audience, and he tells me that he's a, uh, a musical instructor at a school. So I was like, all right, you're a musical instructor. You know, can you sing? Let me hear you sing a song. So this is what happened at the last episode of Michael Jr.'s Break Time. Check it. So you're a musical director. Cool. Yes, sir. All right. So um, let me get a couple. Let me get a couple bars of like uh, "Amazing Grace." Can you do the first part of that? Let me, go ahead. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That bro could sing. You know what I'm saying? All right, all right. Um, now, once you give me the version, is if uh, your uncle just got out of jail, you got shot in the back when you was a kid. I'm just saying, let me see the hood version real quick. If you know which version I'm talking about, just see if that exists. Let me see what you got. Amazing grace. Sweet the sound. 
Okay, um, here's what I want you to catch. The first time I asked him to sing, he knew what he was doing. The second time, he knew why he was doing it. When you know your why, your what becomes more impactful because you're walking towards or in your purpose. Isn't that fun? I find every time I've really watched that, I maybe 30 times, sometimes just on my own, sometimes with friends. I love that for leaders because it really touches we tone we go through so many small things and decisions we don't keep touching back to what our why is um, we're not really sure what effect we're having and with learning spaces when you don't know your why you end up with a bunch of pretty furniture in a room and you haven't made the the support or the changes to learning that you're really hoping to do so every learning space really starts off with your why what is your why? And if you're an English language instructor, maybe because I want every kid to walk out of here feeling powerful about their language and their ability to communicate. If I, as an art teacher, I want every kid to understand their creative potential and to have a process that they can use no matter what happens to them in the future that they feel like that they can create. So as an educator, I'm going to have you guys take a couple minutes, find somebody next to you, tell them what your why is. Okay, can we finish our last sentences and come back together? So how different is, how often, actually, how often do you sit there and tell somebody your big why of education, what you care about? Does that happen to you walk into school every single day and they're like, why are you here? And you're like, I can tell you why. Or does it happen that everything else sort of gets in front of it and sometimes we're making decisions? This happens to me as a teacher, sometimes I'm making decisions and it's not always touching back to my why. And I think about the singing, how different what the impact it was when that was what he was focused on, was his why was in front of that. And when I work with schools, we don't move past the first step of your vision because if we do not have a clear vision, we have no business going forward and picking out anything or changing anything about a learning environment because we're just putting stuff in our room. So that's my why I'm being here. And my other why is because I know that work has really changed. I was 10 years in the field before I went back and got my master's in education. And um, I'm, not, I'm not the person who has always been in school. I, I relate to the kids who don't. His school was not the happiest place for them. And I think about work and how much has changed. We've gone from an environment like this to environments like this. How are we preparing kids to be in that environment? That's one of my big whys. What are we doing for the, to help them be more self-directed learners, to be somebody who knows how to manage a project, to be somebody who can work seamlessly with multiple groups, who understands cultures in a way that they can leverage them to um, get projects done? And spaces like this, well, this next space. This is, the people who designed this is Evolution Design. I have a total like designer crush on this group. Um, so they say this, that in workshops, meetings with team, instead of people at desks, they're in workshops, meeting with teams and doing project work or collaborating with others. Doesn't this sound like class now? It sounds like school now. Or if it doesn't, maybe it should sound, a, this school should sound a little bit more like this. If your school doesn't feel like that yet, I think most of them do. All the teachers I work with, this is what their classrooms sound like. And this is another space that they designed. How fun is this? We've got everybody working. We get to make choices on where we're going to sit and how comfortable we're going to be. And when I work with teachers, especially at the beginning, I would always ask them, like looking at this space, so when you go home to do your work, 
which we all probably have some work that we do at home. How many of you pull out that student desk that you've, that you've rummaged through and you sit down on it and you're the most productive person on the planet? We're laughing because no, you all agree with me and you sit at your student desk, right? I don't even have a desk. I have a desk. It's all my paperwork gets thrown on it. It just gets piled full of stuff. How many of you work in your kitchens? Like on the countertop, maybe standing, sitting on a stool? Yeah, that's a good space. I love that space. I like that height. I like the big space you get to like open things out on. How many of you are somebody who makes couch paninis? Yeah, we know that is already. We have YouTube. <laughs> so if you don't know what couch panini is, you sit on the couch, you have a pillow, you put your laptop on top, maybe you close, close across your legs, you have coffee or wine or something next to you, and it's like you have this beautiful little sanctuary. You're all comfy. I never sit in chairs to work. I'm either on my sofa or standing in my kitchen, maybe perching on a stool. And if we know that we work best in those spaces, then we are we making those choices for kids to learn how to work best in the space for what they're doing? Are we providing enough choices? I talked about the rug before. I started off with my kindergartens to second graders being like, and now the rug. And they were like, this is mind-blowing. We can do work on rugs. We've never been allowed to get out of our chairs in our lives. And it was like I, like I gave them the best gift on the planet. And I was like, it's a rug from Ikea. But they loved it. And their teachers were like, can I do work on rugs? Because I was the you know innovation teacher and the art teacher. So I didn't count. I got to do weird things. But they couldn't understand it. And all of a sudden, they saw that their work was still fine if they did it on rugs. So it's a tiny little choice. They suddenly had two choices instead of one. So we have choices in this space. I love it. We also have this. This is the other thing. I know everyone, like there's always an audible gasp when I see this picture. I love this one. We are pretending like our kids need to collaborate 24 hours a day. We're not recognizing that need like Micaiah told you guys about this morning who can't handle a class for 47 minutes. It's not, it's not in him. Um, are we providing those spaces for our more introverted learners, our more introverted staff, or just the people who have had enough of our visual and auditory stimulation to go, to calm down, to work? You know, I don't know, I, there's interesting things that they're developing, like cubbies in classrooms and things. I think sometimes it's a state of mind, sometimes it's a permission to leave and be someplace else. It doesn't have to be someplace with a bunch of plants, but the acknowledgement that we need this as much as we need that collaborative space I think you kind of heard it in the room when everybody gasped. So I like evolution design because they don't say we design offices. They say we will help you design your workspace strategy for the future. And that's what I'm going to ask all of you to do today is not think about designing a space. Think about designing your learning space strategy for the future. Because we've got to think about how much learning has changed. This is my favorite picture of learning. So. This is like what my son looks like in school right now. He's nine, and he struggles every day. He's like, I hate school. It's awful. He um, struggles, and we bring things home because he doesn't get them done in school because he gets distracted. And I think about this. We've got all of these constructs around what it's supposed to look like, what kids are supposed to be able to produce. And so I think we need a learning space strategy for the future. Our world is going to keep changing. Those things that they're going to need to be able to do, like we know, is going to continue to change. So we can't have that right table or that right chair, that right space design. We can't have as a right strategy to continue to change those things out. And for me, with furniture, what I find so tricky is that when people want to buy, they talk about buying furniture, like they want it to last 100 years, right? And that's the thing. But we're totally fine if we have to refresh our tech in three to five years. But a $150 table should last 100 years. So what you do is you align your activity with your philosophy. And then you find the stuff that supports it. So what does that look like? Um, I have some copies of these down. I've been developing this whole system. And when I realized we were in a theater, I switched it up because we couldn't do this workshop style. So I'm going to give these out to those of you who care about it anyway, and I'll put it on my site next week. It's going to be a part of the next book. Um, but it's what I'm trying to do to help people develop this in themselves and help leaders work this on their own. So we have this activity prioritizer that I've been working on for a few years. If you look at your classroom and think about this, you think, so what's going to happen most of the time? You can probably pick three and do them really well. Elementary grades can do a few more because their spaces kind of have to do so much. But... Is, are you going to spend time collaborating? Are you going to spend time physically making? And there are lots of classes you don't do that in, right? So you probably are going to have collaborating. You might have physical digital. 
you're probably going to have time to reflect, maybe showcase work, but every space is going to be different. When you can start to prioritize what's really important for your space, and this goes from a library to a beta space to a classroom to a hallway, what's the most important thing that this space serves? Then you can find everything that you need and start to start to understand the, pr the process you're going to go through to get your things. I also have in the bottom educators what should happen in the space, the percentage of the time. And it's interesting because I have a lot of people tell me, I'm going to spend most of the time facilitating 80, maybe 10% of the time, you know, um, doing direct instruction and the rest of the time I'm going to spend planning. And they come back after a week and they're like, I spend most of my time just presenting information to teachers, to students. I don't do a lot of facilitating. And I'm like, great, now you know. Do you want to change that? And they're like, yeah, I think I do. So it's okay if you do this and you don't feel like it's what you want it to be. Sometimes this helps you out, and, and it helps you understand if I'm spending too much time facilitating or too much time presenting, not enough time facilitating, and you can build that awareness. I would never use this for our leaders as a tool to judge your teachers. That's not what this is for. It's not an evaluative tool. It's a tool to help you figure out and prioritize what you want your space to do. So hopefully, you, and you, you would have a difference between presenting and facilitating. I don't know what that would be. Our stuff, our 100-year-old furniture. How many of you guys have the furniture graveyard somewhere in your school? Yeah, so that is the best place to go to find the stuff that you need. There are so many great things because what we want to do is to really get to something that I call your just right language. We don't have to always open up a catalog, but you can say, okay, I want to have a maker space. I want my students to be making in my classroom. So I need a table big enough that six kids can work on, a surface that I, we, can, we can mess up, and some space for some storage underneath. That's pretty good language to, to start to have an idea for a table and you start, or, or a work surface. You can go into the basement and see, is there a table that six people can fit around that we can make height adjustable so that kids can stand around it? And all of a sudden, you oftentimes find something like that there, but you have to start off with your language that's very specific. And not too specific to say, I need a silver table with golden wheels and, you know, and pink trim on it. That's too specific. And not just, hey, I need a table. Because then you might get a little round one. You need to find that just right space to find out exactly what you need if you're going to dig in through old furniture. But stuff is important because it does determine how the space works, right? If it doesn't work, um, a lot of times it's the stuff that gets in the way. So before we get into stuff... These are three things I want you guys to think about is orientation, posture, and surface. So we talked about that a tiny bit this morning, orientation. Um, but I think if even if you don't have a penny to spend on your classroom or your learning spaces, if you know these three things, you can probably completely change the way the learning happens in this space. So we start off with orientation. I went over this before, but we have the more teacher-centered approach on one side, and the other spectrum, we have the more student-centered facilitation mode that's what our orientations can kind of look like. So what does this look like in action? Teacher-centered, right? Everyone's facing the front like we are right now. It's very teacher-centered. It makes me feel very uncomfortable. And then we have teacher-centered again. And then we have something that's disruptive, something that's actually more student-centered. The teacher is actually on a mobile unit in the middle of the room and has wireless capabilities. They have Apple TV, and they have um, a way to pro project to two different screens that are on other side. So there's actually no front of classroom in this design. So actually, the teacher is right about in the middle, and that's a sweet spot. That's where I like to teach from, because then I'm right next to Billy, and can be like, Billy, shh, right? Or I can turn and look at somebody. I'm suddenly within the class. It's not no longer everyone's looking at me. I'm a part of the learning. Sometimes I even sit on the floor, and then it's like I disappear entirely, which is really fun. So what does this space look like? This space can go from our flexible instruction setup to a Socratic setup, all the same furniture, to a direct instruction, or what I like to like this, our TED Talk time. And everything is set up in such a way that we have, we have multiple levels of seating. So we actually have... Um, table, so this is our corner for brainstorming. We have this low area that's like really comfy, cozy couch that's for great kind of collaboration because the teacher who designed this space with me wanted, a t wanted an ability to go from Socratic to 
direct instruction where we had two different things, then to presentations for the kids' presentations, and then a work mode. So the work mode includes kids could be working on the walls. We have these mobile whiteboards. Kids could be sitting on the floor. They could be sitting in couches. They're also, they love to sit up in the window and at the, at the cafe height table. And then the tables can move all around and be anything that you want. So all of a sudden, she's able to hit all of her instructional strategies with one, um, with, with one block of furniture. But there's enough choices, and kids get to choose floor, sofa, bar height stools, or chairs. That's, that's a good amount of choices. If we want to give, make kids better at making choices, we need to give them more choices to make. They get better at making them. So that's orientation, how the room is set up. And that, that determines what you really care about. We're going to go to posture next. This is one of my favorite ones. And this is where I get to be a little bit embarrassing sometimes. So po posture, we have, I think if we have pass passive or reflective posture, and we have more active posture. So active posture is really great for building and collaborating and leaning in. Reflective posture or passive posture is good for reading and being kind of all alone. It's not great for collaborating. And so when we get kids in a chair and we say, okay, your group needs to collaborate, you get that one kid that does this and leans way back, right? Like completely disengaged, like faces completely toward the ceiling. And they're, they're showing the rest of the team what? They don't care. They don't want to work. So what do I do? Um, I can't take the, the chair away. Uh, because my chair is what I get in my classroom. I have no control over that at my school, despite all my experience. Um, I instead of I can do is go, okay, guys, I would like this group to stand up. I've suddenly changed the posture. What I do is he doesn't have the fortress of solitude, little desk in front of him with all of his things. He has to stand up, and I give them markers. I'm like, okay, I'd like you guys to go work on that wall. And your everything you're communicating to your group suddenly changes. Your posture is more active. You're leaning in. Now, that's why art teachers like stools. And that's why chefs don't sit in sofas to cook, right? They have to be up, they have to be active, they have to be busy. So thinking about what the action is, what kind of, um, what kind of posture do I need to get? So here we have active posture, active posture, science, reflective, passive posture. It has a place, but it's not great for collaboration. It's great for a lot of other things. And the tricky thing is, if you bring kids in as designers of learning spaces, which I really encourage, don't ask them ever about the stuff. Ask them about the kind of learning they want to do, the kinds of stuff they want to create. Because when you ask a group of, of students, what, kind of, what, do you, what should we have in this learning space, they're going to tell you beanbags and trampoline floors and unlimited supplies of snacks. I know this because I've asked more than 300 of them. And they almost all say exactly those same things. Unlimited supplies, snacks, trampoline floors, which where do they even hear about these things? I've never seen a trampoline floor, and I like to see one, but that's it. And beanbags. Because that to them is something that's playful. It's something that's fun. It's going to be engaging. But it's not where you'd want to go to do maker activities and create incredible things. That might be great in some spaces. So we don't ever ask them what they want. So let's, we've done orientation. We've done posture. And now we're getting to surfaces. This is one of my, uh, my other favorite thing. We have two different kinds of surfaces. We have surfaces that I like to think of as individual and surfaces that are collaborative. I'm going to get out an individual surface. Oh, my individual surface is missing. Oh, my individual surface is ripped. OK, individual surface. This is an individual surface. I have a packet of them. Um, we all carry them with us. Something that's really easy to go through a photocopier, right? Um, we tend to only have kids work on these in a lot of places. We, because we can duplicate them, because we can print from them, because Google sets them up exactly for us to put stuff onto them. And so do a lot of other things. But if we really want kids collaborating, we want them off of these. We want them on something that's going to afford everyone to make their thinking visible in the same space. So. What are some good examples of this one? This is from Hillbrook. These are girls working at a problem. They have a big whiteboard. This is why in all these innovative spaces you see whiteboards. It's because of this. Here we've got kids going through a design sprint, discussing it, showing each other their thinking. We want to get better thinkers. We make their thinking more visible.
so we can see it. We can't see it when it's so small. So what I like to do a lot of times is take away the papers and just give them Expo markers. I give my kids different color Expo markers so I know what, I know what their marker color is. And then I'll put the question on the wall. I can walk away and come back and I know who wrote what. I know what kind of, I know who's helping with the process. I know maybe why someone's feeling excluded, whatever it might be. I can see it because it's already on the wall. We take a picture of it, we erase it, we leave space for more current learning to happen. It can also happen on tables. Um, whiteboard tables happen to have like just a shelf life of about 10 years. They're, they don't last as long, but they're really fun. And when their whiteboard tables also flip up, they're even more fun because they can go away and like store away. Um, but this one's just a simple one. And with this activity, kids were rotating the table around and writing and giving each other comments. And that was a really fun way to do this. The other great thing about these kinds of surfaces, if I haven't sold you already, is I don't work for Idea Paint. I don't work for anybody who actually makes them. But they're non-evaluative surfaces. Kids don't get grades on these. Kids are much more likely to be creative and thoughtful when they're not worried about the grade or the points that they might be missing. So I like to get them on these. This is also why I like to give my kids napkins to work on. No one's worried about messing up on a napkin. Surfaces matter. Okay, so every space, when you're designing them, we start off with our mission. And we say this learning space will support students too. I like to start off that way because then you get three things, three kinds of verbs. Mine is to, to make, create, and design. Um, there are some other things we also reflect. We do lots of things. But what are the big things they're going to do? If you can't answer that question, you can't pick out furniture yet. You can't go down to the furniture graveyard and, and pull it upstairs because you don't know what you need yet. So the first question to always answer is, this learning space will support students too. And the funny thing is a lot of people don't know that because they haven't thought about it in that way. So it takes a little bit of reflection. Here are some spaces that were designed to support students to do something. Um, for years, I worked with school districts that had zero funding for these things. And so we got money from PTOs and went to IKEA. And I still do that. I'm very proud of that work. And because if you spend $1,000 in a classroom and you learn across an entire community what's working, what's not working, you can go in and then invest in a more higher quality, longer term furniture. But you, you fail really fast in that case. It's great. So here's a student. This is a school that is, um, this is a sixth grade building. Six, sixth grade science teachers designed this space. So every space in here has a purpose. They do labs. The labs happen on the wooden surfaces because they're easier to clean. That's also where they do their makerspace activities. All the white surfaces in the room are for computers because the teachers were terrified that they were going to get their Chromebooks wet with any kind of lab equipment. So we made those kind of protocols just with the surface of the table. We went in, you can see the boys sitting in the green shirt. That was a heater that they had to, um, they couldn't take out because of asbestos. So it just sat in the corner of the room. We painted it orange and put a countertop on top of it and called it a genius bar. Um, it cost, <laughs> it cost $65 and is one of the best things in the whole space. Um, it actually uses the perimeter of the room really well. This is a kindergarten classroom. The purpose of this space was to really create autonomy in the learners, but also give them those structures to learn to have a still body and to be a civilized human being. Um, because those are the, if, who's taught pre-K, K, one? Yeah, they're not, they're like wild animals, right? When they start, I, 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 I know this. They have to learn how to be civilized. And so this was great because they had, they had choices. Would you want standing height desks or standing height table? Chair height table or floor height table. Those are your three choices for this activity. So there was structure built in to choice. And then they could then learn and reflect on where they learned best. The other thing we did was to think to transform the classroom walls in this space. Um, so this was a, a, um, a teacher told me students can't do, um, have, a, kindergarten students cannot have an authentic audience. And so I said, well, maybe they could with the alphabet. And so we got these. They're laminated them every day, the kids would come in and pick out a new letter and have to write it. And they would get feedback from their peers, and they would correct it until it looked good enough for other people to read off of it. They take pictures of it, and they could see their growth from their, their, their printing from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And they suddenly had a really realistic, authentic audience. And this teacher, the one who said it to me, started transforming all of her things that way. The kids started writing all the signs because it was important to them that they did the B correctly when everyone else was looking at it. 
and it shifted that thinking for them. This is one of my favorite little experiments. This one, another way to use the walls. The, with this, this is my science classroom. We use the walls in this space, so we're doing um, a science activity. These are my, my clouds are my essential questions. And then I have the I think I know pond and the I wonder lake. And so my, cause my students were telling me all the time facts of things. Oh, well, that's not true. I mean, we're, I live in America, so this ha you guys know what's going on with us right now. Um, so I was trying to push the boundaries of my students and like that they were just saying things that we know to be untrue or we don't know to be true. And I said, well, we have to go, we have to research things before we actually state something as a fact. So that's an I think I know or that's an I wonder. And so they started to stop saying, well, this is it. Oh, wait, I think I know this. Then they could take it. So it would arrive in the sea of discovery. They had to take it through the, um, what is it called? They had to take it through the river of research and they had to triangulate their river. And then we, they, I didn't make this because I didn't know, but we ended up making the bog of wrong ideas. And so they would, they, when they realized it was wrong, they'd put it down below. And this was paper and construction paper and they loved it. And, it's, and it, what's beautiful is that this was this tiny little thing that I did that I got from a science idea, which the, um, the URL is there. I was so excited about it. It transformed our whole classroom and our whole learning. It transformed the way that their mindsets were about their thinking. They started coming to me and starting to say something, oh, no, I, I, I wonder if this could be true. I'm going to go check. And all of a sudden I was like, uh, that was just because of some blue paper on the wall. It really transformed things for us. And people have used it since then, and I love it, but this is my, my first time doing this. Um, this space we already went through. This space was designed with such purpose. Um, it's so meaningful to me. I hope that you guys got some inspiration for your, your schools about this. There's some other way that you're doing so much great care for kids, but there's something you could do and some way to bring that in that could make what you're, the amazing things you're doing even better. And sometimes it's a matter of just having um, a, a place for kids to go to decompress. This space is a fourth grade classroom. This, cl this teacher runs a business out of his class. And so they make things, they make money, then they donate it to charity. So that's the maker space over in the corner. He had a problem because there were no closets, so we put cubbies in. And then we, we transformed each one of the tables. The kids would work in teams. And so this is my, this is something I really love the idea of. You have a vertical surface for kids to write on. And that place, they could all say, we need your help. And when he was walking around, he could see that. They would put up their thinking to give each other feedback. And they had a horizontal space to work on as well as a team. Um, those two things are kind of all that they needed in order to make their classroom run. He ended up moving to fifth grade and instead of fourth grade, had to give up this classroom and then made almost the exact same classroom again out of Ikea furniture that he bought himself, which I don't understand why he did that, but he's kind of amazing. So again, here kids have multiple places to sit. This, this entire space is driven by the need for them to own their own learning and, and to um, share their thinking and create. So the thing I like to ask kids is how can a space help you learn? Um, that's before we start thinking about the stuff. This is, this is a really cute, um, a cute space. We took these tables and as a designer, you have to think about what you can do. Six years ago, there were not, there was not furniture that met these needs on the market. So we took these tabletops from Ikea. We took the little metal tubes that they come with that are $3, the Adilis legs, and we got a hacksaw and we cut them down. We put the foot back on them and made, um, and we made surfaces for kids to sit on the floor. People keep thinking that this was designed for kindergartners. The ones who loved it the most were the high school students. They loved to sit on the floor. No one ever lets them do anything but sit in desks all day. So he was a senior in high school when we did this, and that was his favorite place to be in the whole building. So I'm going to open this up to questions in a minute. We've got some time left, and I wanted to share this resource with you quickly. But I just want to reiterate that the best spaces, the best learning spaces are the ones that are really shaped by a vision. And like we saw in Michael Jr.'s, that why is so important to make that vision come alive when you have it really clear. So before you get started on thinking about your space, think about what your vision is. Um, I would like to open this up to questions, but I'm going to also show you guys this. If you want, they made a bunch of copies, and I will share this on my website in a, in a few days. But this is what I think, this is what I was hoping to get to present with you guys about, but we need everyone working and moving around so the theater style didn't work. This goes into a day in the life and um, of, your, of your learning space and gets you to think about your just right language. And I print this out usually on big poster formats and have teachers work around them. So if you're designing spaces in your building, this can be a really nice resource to frame your thinking. And you can see if the vision's not there, you can't really move forward.
in the process. So um, if you'd like one, they are here for you to take, and I'm happy to talk to you more about it. So um, any questions from the group that I can answer? Yeah. So best thing I'd like to do is all furniture manufacturers um, are totally happy to give you some things to test out. And if they're not, I would not work with them. I would say I'd like to have two or three of these tables, a couple of these chairs. We'd like to keep them in our school for about a month. And I want a bunch of te teachers to work with them and use them. And we want to get feedback from students. Are they comfortable? Do they work? But you give them some time to work through it. I would never buy anything that I haven't had for my, my building for at least a month. And that I don't know that like the, my distributor hasn't jumped on and squeezed and made sure that it's like, if I'm spending good money for it, that it's actually well made. Um, so that's the thing that I do. As far as a learning environment, that's a tricky thing because sometimes you can create some great environments. But if you have a school that like the teaching so different in every space, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make every environment the same. What I would do is help develop teachers to feel like they're the designers of their space and they own it. And then I would help them figure out what they need in order to, um, in order to make that space really work for them. And then create that culture of that it always being a strategy. So something that we do is um, if we have a budget, let's pretend like we have a, a budget of $30,000. I'm just making something up. I would spend 60 to 70% of that and I would leave the rest for when I've learned what I've learned from my space. We don't like this chair, but I would give that six months. I would never spend it all at once because you spend it all and then in six months you realize that was not great, this was. Get as little as you can survive with and in a few weeks you'll know what you need. So that's what we're doing with San Francisco right now. We're letting them spend 60% of their budget and we're keeping the rest of the 40 to help them develop it in, after four months of school when they've learned what they need. What other questions can I help you guys with? Yeah. Yeah, I've done a lot of different design spaces. I think the thing that's so funny is that I keep seeing people like, this is my outdoor classroom, and there are a bunch of chairs in rows. And I'm like, I'm like, an outdoor classroom should be like an exploration laboratory. We designed some places where, you know, things can move out and be in the open, and then they have to like be, you know, be put back away. I worked in Florida for a number of years, and like, you were outdoors all the time. So thinking about what's going to be durable outside, what can get wet, but really the activity that you want kids to be doing. So if it's like, if it's nature-based, um, there's so many, there's so many incredible things happening with forestry schools that, you know, I would see like, who can you connect with? Because it's a lot to ask a teacher like, oh, now go work outside. And then we're going to shut the door behind you. See who can connect in the, in, in, in the area to do that kind of, to help transform that kind of work. Thank you all so much for being a great audience. Um, I hope I didn't bore you. If you need anything, these are down here. Please ask me other questions. I'll be around tonight and tomorrow. Thank you so much. Have a good day.